So this is Hezekiah chapter 2, as in it's the second message on the Hezekiah, but it's obviously I can't ask you to turn to the book of Hezekiah chapter 2 because you're all way too smart for that now. Um, but uh, it was supposed to be a one-week message on this guy Hezekiah, and it's turned into, well, more than just this morning. We're going to be talking about it again next week, Lord willing. But uh, I want us to go back into the book of Isaiah now, because that's where we've been studying, and look at, at Hezekiah's story. Last week, we went back to the first year of Hezekiah's reign, and how unique that was, uh, especially during his time and during the, the season that he reigned for somebody to become king of Judah and wipe out all idolatry and reestablish temple worship. That was massive. It was just a, an incredible example to the nation as a whole. And, uh, and now we're going to pick up in Isaiah. We're going to pick up a little bit later in his life. But before we do, I just want to kind of remind us that the book of Isaiah is really unique among books. There's a lot of things about the book of Isaiah that just don't happen in other books. Um, for instance, the number of years, when you think of the prophets, we have the story of Jonah. Now, we took forever to preach through it, but it didn't happen over that great of a span of time. Okay? But Isaiah... Um, Isaiah actually spans pre-exile Israel all the way through post-exile and establishment of the temple in the content that he covers. Um, that's from like 743 B.C. to 538 B.C., um, 205 years-ish, I mean, plus or minus, right? But his ministry only spanned 40 or 60 years. So that's kind of unique that a guy who's a prophet is speaking about a 200-year period and only had a 40- to 60-year ministry. Um, I think the other thing that's unique about Isaiah is the number of prophecies about the Messiah. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any book of the Bible that talks more about the Messiah than the book of Isaiah. So if you want to understand the ministry of Jesus in the, and when he showed up on this earth, you have to study the book of Isaiah, or you're just not going to get it. There's so many references, even as I was preparing for this message, that I wanted to go to, and it's like, I can't go to all those now. But Lord willing, we'll cover the book of Matthew. Um, partway through 2021, we'll start into Matthew, and we'll get a chance to do that. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I think he's actually the second most quoted author. So you have um, the Psalms are the most quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament. That's pretty impressive. Um, so that's something that's unique about it. Um, his revelation of Yahweh, God, is really amazing. When you look at the Old Testament, you're trying to understand who God is. You can read chapters of certain books and, and get a little glimpse into who God is. But when you read Isaiah, man, you get God. You find out so much about him. Uh, if you want a challenge for 2021... Read through the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, did I get that right? Read through Isaiah, and every time you come to something that tells you about God and his character and his actions, write it down. But start with a good, thick notebook, okay? Because you'll just be amazed at how much you learn. And the, the purpose of the Word of God is to reveal God to us. And we only know about God because of what he does reveal to us, and Isaiah tells us so much. So it's, it's unique that way. I think the other way that it's unique is the way that it's organized. So if you read any commentaries on Isaiah, you'll hear people talk about 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. And you're like, what? So the 1st Isaiah is chapters 1 
um, to, to 39, and then chapters 4 to 66, is they call it second Isaiah. Um, some people, actually, there was a guy, um, what was his name? I want to make sure I get his name right. Uh, Doom, D-U-H-M. In 1892, he actually came up with three different breakdowns. He has first, second, and third Isaiah, which I thought was interesting. Still chapters 1 through 39 are first Isaiah, and then the second Isaiah is 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66 is third Isaiah. Like, they're little mini books inside the book of Isaiah. Now, we have, like, first and second Kings. We broke them out. Okay, but they would be considered one book, the book of Kings, if we have first and second volumes. A lot of commentators have broken down Isaiah in a similar fashion, um, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, you might even read about little mini books inside of Isaiah that's kind of unique. For instance, there's the Little Apocalypse, chapters 24 through 27. It's called the Little Apocalypse, and it's like, ooh, a little mini book inside the big book. Um, or chapters 28 through 33 are the six woes. It's like this mini little volume inside the big volume. And, and most, most outlines have taken the first 40 books, 39 books, and separated them from the second 40. And that's pretty consistent. Uh, matter of fact, I brought an outline with me. I thought, well, let me just throw an outline up there for you. So hopefully you'll be able to see this online. Um, we're, we're working on the technology, and hopefully this will work well. You might have to go full screen on this one, Jason. Um, so the outline of Isaiah, you start out with 12 chapters of judgment and hope. And I think that David covered this. We talked about this theme of judgment and hope and how they go together. Um, chapters 13 through 23 are the oracles against the nations. Woe to you. You're doomed. It's, it's bad. This is what's going to happen to you. God's going to do this. Uh, oracles against the nations and included in the nations is Israel. You have to remember that. It's not just oracles against all of the other nations that are the enemies of Israel. Israel's included in there. Um, chapters 24 through 27, final judgment and blessing. A lot of the day of the Lord content coming through there. Chapters 28 through 33 are the series of woes. There's six of them. Nobody likes to cover woes, so we want to skip on to that. Um, Chapters 34 and 35, more judgment and blessings. Read the prophets. You'll just keep seeing this theme. More judgment and blessings, more judgment and hope, more judgment and whatever. It's going to keep happening. Chapters 36 through 39 is this historical interlude in the middle of this book of prophecy about this guy, Hezekiah. It's kind of weird. You really don't have any historical narratives taking place in the rest of the book. You have a little bit about Ahaz in the beginning, chapter 7, but you don't have much going on here. You get to chapters 40 through 48, and you have the return from exile. You get to chapters 49 through 57, you have salvation through the servant of the Lord, and the servant of the Lord being the Messiah. Isaiah is one of the few prophets that presents the suffering servant of the Messiah. So that's unique. Um, I think David's going to be preaching on that if I ever get done with Hezekiah. Um, and then chapters 58 through 66 are ultimate blessings and final judgments. So now judgment and blessing, they're two of the major themes of the prophets. Um, however, in the middle of this judgment sandwich, 
is this narrative about this guy, Hezekiah. There's this historical interlude about this man. And, and I made a statement that Hezekiah started well. And a few of you commented that you felt like I started a statement there and didn't finish. That would be ironic, wouldn't it? Talk about starting well and then finishing well and then not actually finishing. Um, I'm not going to finish today either. But we actually pick up with Hezekiah in chapter 36. And of the four kings mentioned in chapter 1, um, only one of the four has three chapters dedicated to him. So chapter 1, verse 1, we read about, this is Isaiah's ministry during four different kings. One of them was Ahaz, and we talked about him a little bit in chapter 7. And the other one is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, there's like three chapters on this guy in the middle of it. So what does that tell me? Isaiah is a no-nonsense guy. Isaiah is like, this is what God says. This is the vision God has given me. This is what you need to know. So if Isaiah takes three chapters and dedicates it to a certain man who was ruling during that day, there's got to be something significant that we have to capture about this man. There has to be something about his actions that line up with the bigger work of what God is doing, or else Isaiah would not put it in there. Trust me. I mean, everything in Isaiah is intentional. So this Hezekiah story is very intentional. There's something significant about it. So let's dive in, and we're going to see if we can find out what that is. We're going to start in Isaiah 36, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 36, 1 through 3. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And the Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. All right. So last week we looked at the first year of Hezekiah's reign. Now we're picking up in year 14. And the events of the first year are amazing, but now what took place in year 14 that was significant enough to split Isaiah's book in half? What happened at this point that made, it, made Isaiah want to stop talking about judgment to the nations and focus in on this man? Isaiah's living at this time. So these events that are taking place are part of his life. And in that time, he's familiar with the places. He's familiar with the people. Uh, a huge part of the story, I think, is left out. A lot of the details are not there because he was living it. We do this all the time, right? You're telling a story, and you might reference a particular place. Well, that place means something to you because it's in your lifetime. For instance, if I said, Pastor Len came from Syracuse to give a message. Well, most of you know who Pastor Len is. Some of you are like, who's Pastor Len? Okay, well, those of you that know Pastor Len, be like tracking with me right away, and the rest of you be like, who's Pastor Len? And if I don't tell you, if you don't have the context, you're like, I'm missing part of the story. And then if I said he came from Syracuse, you'd say, okay, well, Syracuse, yeah, that's about a 90 minutes south of here. Um, you know, you head over and you head down 81, you get, it's a big city, you know, it's got a big mall. How many of you know about Syracuse. Right. Some of you are going, well, yeah, they play basketball there too, right? So 
If I mentioned Len and Syracuse, some of you would get the context of Syracuse, some would get the context of Len, some would get the context of both. But if you didn't have all the context, you'd feel lost in the story. So I want to unpack this intro to chapter 36 so that we can get a lens into what's going on in Isaiah's world at this time to understand the significance of these events. It's going to be a challenge. So we're going to go through a historical timeline. Um, at least I'm going to try. I'm going to try. All right, I'm going to put it all up there, and you can try to dissect this with me. So any of you love history? And be like, yeah, that's the class I did the worst in. Um, I actually hated history until after college and then really got into Bible history and thought it was really cool. Um, so we're going to start, we're going to back up. Uh, so if you know uh, AD and BC, right? So the numbers in, in BC kind of go backwards. The bigger the number, the further back it is. Uh, 842, King Yehu, <laughs> or Jehu of Israel, the northern kingdom, pays a tribute to Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. So in 842, the king of the northern tribes, the 10 of them, pays money to the king of Assyria so they won't be conquered at that time. This was the beginning of the downfall of the exile. Sometime between 793 and 753, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Remember that story? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Jonah goes to these wicked people, who the northern kingdom is already paying tribute to, and preaches a message of repentance, and they repent, and God spares them, and Jonah's mad. And you know why he's mad, because these are the people who are oppressing them. In 734, so anywhere from 20 to 60 years later, Tiglath-Pileser III took some of the northern kingdom and exiled them to Assyria. So now some of the people who were, who were Jews, even though they were paying money to Assyria, have been taken captive. In 727, after that exile, I'm sorry, let me back, 732, sorry, 734, there's people that are exiled in northern, in, in northern kingdom, Israel. In 732, Ahaz, the evil king, of Judah, makes an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser III, and he plunders the temple to pay tribute to this guy. He said, I saw what happened in, northern, in the northern kingdom, and now I'm going to try to pay off this guy in Assyria so it doesn't happen to us. That's 732. 723, Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, the two kings, the two kingdoms or tribes in the, in the southern kingdom. And he restores the temple worship, and he wipes out idolatry. Three years later, Shalmaneser V marches against Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And he besieges it for three years. Three years. And in 722, Samaria is conquered by Sargon II. And 27,290 captives were taken from Israel into exile. So almost, almost 28,000 people were taken captive um, into exile. So that's the history. The northern kingdom has been, has been paying tribute. They had some of their people go into exile. 
The, the capital of the northern kingdom was laid siege to, and it was conquered, and then tens of thousands of people are taken into exile in the northern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, Hezekiah is just living the dream, right? He's the king. He's restored temple worship. The people are happy. They're celebrating. And then you get to 701, which is where we are in chapter 36. 701, Sennacherib, son of Sargon II, the one who took over Samaria, attacks the fortified cities of Judah and takes them. So Judah, this kingdom, had a bunch of fortified cities, cities that were their defenses. And King Sennacherib went in and conquered all the fortified cities, leaving just the capital left. And that happened just prior to what we're reading about in chapter 36. So chapter 36 says that Sennacherib sent his armies and his troops up from Lachish. So we should talk about Lachish for a minute. You're going to hear the timeline. Lachish is one of the fortified cities of Judah. It was about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was one of the largest cities in Israel. And it was the gateway to the capital. In other words, to get to Jerusalem, you had to go through Lachish. So it was one of their most fortified cities. As a matter of fact, this is where it's believed they had a lot of their armies trained. It's where they would have their, their horses, and, and people who worked with horses would be in the Lachish area. The major fortified stronghold that kept the enemies from Jerusalem was Lachish. Sennacherib conquers all of those places, including Lachish, and he sends his emissary from Lachish up to Jerusalem. It was a really cool place. Lachish was an important border fortress. Um, uh, for, the, for the frontier of Judah. And here's some ruins. Uh, it's up on a hill, uh, quite a, a big hill, and it's hard to tell from the ruins, but like that just keeps going on forever. There's huge open fields around it. It's up on a hill, and it had steep ravines on three sides of it. So you can only go up one way to get into it. It was well fortified. This was their stronghold. Lachish was taken. So, Sennacherib took over the largest fortified city and camped there, knowing that the horrifying news would get back to Hezekiah. Imagine you're the king, and you've just heard that all of your fortified cities, including the one that protects where you live, are all conquered, and the king of Assyria, he's camping at your biggest one. And now he's sending somebody up to meet you from that location. There's another weird detail that's mentioned here. Now, there are passages in the Bible that seem odd to me. And there are details that Bible authors put in that just seem random. Isn't that, have you ever felt that way? So there's this passage, this, this location, the conduit of the upper pool near the launderer's field. I mean, that's like me saying, it's like the intersection near Stewart's and Black River. I mean, you're like, well, why would you put that detail in there, right? It's just weird. Sometimes it seems like they're there for no apparent reason, but I really want to encourage you, when you see a random detail like that, check it out. Because often, it's a hyperlink. Often, it's a unique enough detail to make you think back to something else and connect the dots. Sometimes it gives us an insight into the bigger story by linking it 
to another story with the same detail. This location, the conduit of the upper pool near the launderer's field, has actually been given one other time in Isaiah, the exact location. We're going to look at it. Go back to chapter 7 with me, Isaiah chapter 7. And just so that you know, I almost skipped the whole detail, but it's one of the key details. I'm so glad that God didn't let me skip this detail because I think this is one of the coolest things about this introduction. Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 4. So we're talking about now King Ahaz, the wicked king. Of the three kings mentioned in Isaiah 1.1, this is the bad guy. This is Hezekiah's dad. Isaiah 7, verse 1. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem. Is this where you color-coded the Bible for us, David? Okay, so this is David's color-coded Bible version here, right? Um, so the red king and the blue king. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so they, they were not able to conquer it, though. And when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of the people trembled like trees of the forest shaking in the wind. So the king is terrified and the people are terrified. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out with your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. You're like, what? Apparently it's a pretty common place to meet at least for Isaiah, and say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. So David did share about this. Actually, this was the passage on a virgin will conceive. And you're like, really? Yeah, this whole thing is like the intro to the virgin will conceive passage. So Isaiah met Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Isaiah met Ahaz there and said, do not fear, but trust Yahweh. What did Ahaz do? He feared, and he didn't trust Yahweh, right? Ahaz did not listen to Isaiah. He did not choose to trust God. Instead, he formed an alliance with Assyria, and that was 732 B.C. Fast forward to 701 B.C., and you have the messenger from Assyria at the same exact spot with a message for the king. So I want you to catch what's going on here. I made a slide, but I want you to see this. This is so cool. This is the plot twist. In chapter 7, it's the messenger of God with a message for the ungodly king to trust Yahweh. And in chapter 36, it's the messenger of Assyria with a message for the godly king to not trust Yahweh. It's so cool the way Isaiah is bringing this out. He's like, do you see what's going on here? In chapter 7, the man of God went to this ungodly king and said, you need to trust Yahweh. And Ahaz is like, nope, not going to do it. And now you have an ungodly kingdom and the messenger of an ungodly king coming up to the man of God, the king of God, saying, don't you dare trust Yahweh. He can't save you from me. It's cool. I mean, this is intentional. And the hyperlink to it is... The, is the road of the upper pool by the launderer's field. That's your hyperlink. That in this exact same spot, 31 years prior, Isaiah confronted Ahaz and said, you need to trust God. And Ahaz didn't. And now, 31 years later, here's the ambassador for Assyria saying, 
Don't even bother trusting God. He can't save you. You're going to see a lot of parallels between these two stories, and that's intentional. Remember that in chapter 7, Ahaz and the people were terrified and shook like trees. But we're going to focus on what happens in chapter 36 instead. So let's go back to chapter 36, verses 1 through 3. I've given you some, some background material. You have some dates here, all the stuff going on with the northern kingdom, what happened even with the southern kingdom, with Ahaz making an alliance 31 years beforehand, and this meeting at the launderer's field, and the fact that Lachish is this fortified city that protects Jerusalem. Let's go back and read chapter 36, verses 1 through 3 again. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman, along with a massive army, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And the Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to meet him. After tens of thousands of Jews had been taken captive in the northern kingdom, after the major defending cities of Judah had been captured, including their biggest city, Lachish, the gatekeeper to Jerusalem, the chief official of Assyria marches up to the city of Jerusalem with an army behind him to speak to Hezekiah, and he stands at the exact same spot where Isaiah met with Ahaz about 31 years prior when Ahaz failed to trust God. What do you think, given those details, Isaiah wants to bring out in the story that's about to take place? Why would Isaiah be so careful to include all of these details that he would know about and the people of Judah would know about? Why would he bring that up? Hold that thought. We'll get to it. The setting that we have is one of defeat and fear. Strongholds defeated, an army at your front door, the army that conquered your brothers and sisters in the north and carried them away. If you were in Jerusalem, if you were standing on the wall in Jerusalem and you saw coming from Lachish, the armies of the Assyrian with the ambassador of the Assyrian army in front of them, marching up to your gate, knowing that this is the people who took your, took your brothers and sisters away into captivity. This is the one who just, you've already heard the reports that your fortified cities have been captured. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? You tell me, what would you be feeling? What's that? Panic. Oh, yeah, big time. Anybody? Anger. Anger. Anger at whom? Yeah, angry at the army that's coming up. They took your, they took your brothers and sisters. Definitely. What else would you be feeling? What's that? Fear. Fear. Dismay. Doom. Gloom. I mean, it's not looking very positive right now, right? This is bad. This is really bad. I want us to continue reading now that we have that preface, because I want you to understand what's going on from this messenger of Assyria and how he's messing with the Israelites. Verse 4. 
the royal spokesman. Now you might have a you might have a word in yours that looks like a name. It's actually a a, a word for a title, which is why the CSB has put in the royal spokesperson for the Assyrians. If you have a name there, it's actually not a person's name; it's their title. The royal spokesman said to them, "Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria, says this: Why are you? Re- what are you relying on?" You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? Who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? Look, you're relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say to me, we rely on Yahweh, our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar. Now, this encounter is meant to discourage and to humiliate. You notice Hezekiah is not addressed as king. The ambassador stands up and says, Hezekiah, the king, the great king of Assyria, the only king, the king of Assyria, wants you to hear this message. So he's already defaced Hezekiah by not even acknowledging his kingship. It's a good strategy. You know, I'm, I'm going to say this. I really like this bad guy. He's a bad guy, but I really like this bad guy um, as far as bad guys go. Is that okay? Is it okay to like a bad guy? Um, it was common back in the day when you faced an army that was bigger than yours to form alliances. There are not many countries left that Israel could form an alliance with. One of the few that they might be able to is Egypt, but Egypt's day is done. Egypt's been destroyed. And, and they're, they're minuscule now. And so, Hezekiah, so, um, so the ambassador said, hey, listen, you're going to trust Egypt? They're probably the only hope you have, and, and they're, you can't count on them. You can't lean on them, because if you lean on them, they'll break too. They're, they're, just, they're weak. And I really love this illustration of Egypt being this um, splintered staff. Uh, Any of you ever go hiking? I, I love to hike. And years ago, I had, a, I had a fiberglass pole, fiberglass poles that I used when I was hiking. And I remember we were up, one of the high peaks, we were hiking up, and there are people coming down the trail, a large group, so you step aside. So I stepped aside, and I lost my footing, and I leaned back on my pole, and it snapped. And I caught myself just before the thing went, like, into my hand, because it's fiberglass. It's like, that's sharp. I leaned on it, and it wasn't strong enough. It must have been damaged at some point, and it could have pierced me, and the realization hit me. I'm like, I'm never buying this kind of pole again. I can't lean on this pole. I need something that'll support me. So I felt very afraid. I actually was concerned because when I lost my footing, I was near the edge, and that made it even worse. So it was, it was very unnerving at the time. And so when he used this illustration, I'm like, yeah, I get that. I really get that. Because I leaned on something and had it snap on me and almost puncture me. And that's what he's saying would happen. If you lean on Egypt, not only are they going to break, but they'll be the death of you. They'll just they'll puncture you. They'll wound you more than they'll help you. The Assyrians say, you can't count on Egypt. And then he says, and you can't even count on Yahweh. You probably have ticked him off. Isn't Yahweh the one who you just wiped out, Hezekiah? Didn't you just wipe out all of those other altars and temples uh, and and places of of sacrifice and make everybody go back to Jerusalem? You probably ticked him off. You think he's going to save you? So the messenger was trying to discourage the people, saying, the king has no authority they have no allies on earth, and they cannot count on God to protect them. Now, 
If your job as the ambassador of Assyria is to discourage your enemy to the point where they want to quit, this guy's good. He's really good. What he wants them to do is to surrender. He doesn't want to fight them. He wants them just to give up. And we read that starting, we'll keep going, verses 8 through 12. Now make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them. (laughs) How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? Yahweh said to me, attack this land and destroy it. All right, so he comes in, he says, let's make a deal. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 2,000 horsemen if you can put people on them. Oh, you can't? I mean, literally, that's what he's doing here. Like, I'll give you the horses, and you put soldiers on them. But you don't have that many soldiers left that can ride horses, because we just took Lakish, which is probably most of your horse training. You don't have any left. So if you can't even put people on horses, how are you going to come up against us when we come in with armor and chariots? You can't defend yourself. You're weak against us. And then he goes on to say, have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? I think verse 10 is the most sinister of all the statements he makes. He says, listen, you think God will stop me? He told me to take you out. Well, now you're really messing with their minds. Because the message of Isaiah is that the people would be taken over, that the people would go into exile. The message of Isaiah is one that they will be punished, but then there will be hope afterwards, and they haven't faced the punishment yet. During the life of Isaiah and before this, they watched their brothers in the north get taken away. Is it possible, if you're a Jew listening to this, is it possible that this is the guy who is going to take you away and God did send him? Well, yeah, it really is possible. Oh, he's good. He is such a good bad guy. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the royal spokesman, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew with an earshot of the people who are on the wall. But the royal spokesman replied, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? This guy is like, just, what, I'm only supposed to speak to you? They should be hearing this. Let them hear it. Now remember, when the message came to Ahaz, the people trembled in fear. Ahaz trembled in fear. The goal of this encounter is to get the people to tremble in fear. Now, why ask them to speak in Aramaic? Aramaic was a very diplomatic language of its day. It would not be known by the majority of the Jews. So to speak in Aramaic would mean that the conversation would not be known by those sitting on the wall. So he's saying, please speak in a different language, one that's that's proper for negotiation and not in Hebrew in our own language. Which, by the way, the fact that the Assyrian could speak Hebrew well enough to get this point across. He even knew the Hebrew word for excrement and urine. I mean, that's pretty impressive. He goes on, verse 13. Then the royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew. I mean, he's just eating this up. 
You don't want me to speak in Hebrew to people on the wall? Let me show you what I'm going to do. He starts getting louder in Hebrew, and he says, listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on Yahweh, saying Yahweh will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me, and then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land a lot like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Oh, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, Yahweh will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim? I don't even know how to say that word. Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Samaria is the capital of what? Israel, the northern kingdom. Did they rescue your brothers in the north? Who among the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will Yahweh rescue Jerusalem from my power? Do you think if none of these other gods, including the gods that your brothers in the north called on, which they did, by the way, serve other gods, which is part of the punishment, why they're being punished, did their God save them? What makes you think your God can save you? So the next strategy of this guy is not only to get people to fear, but to lose confidence in their leader. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he says this, because he's lying to you. He wants to cause division among the people, between the people and the armies, because the armies may feel loyalty to Hezekiah that the people might struggle with. He wants the people, including the armies and these messengers, to probably denounce Hezekiah as their king and to say, listen, our best bet is to take him up on his offer. He says he'll let us stay here and eat from our own food and have our own places. And then when he does take us away, because he said he's going to do that, it'll be to a good place. He'll take care of us. Wow. He offers him a deal. And it sounds like a good deal. Now, I know I shouldn't like this bad guy. I know I should be, I should struggle with this guy. But there's so many bad guys in the Bible that have just been lame. I mean, like Balak, he was lame. And there's so many lame bad guys that are just like pouty and whiny and drunkards. This guy, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. He's been sent by the king of Assyria with a job, and he's going to do it, and he's going to do it well. So he marches up from the strongest city of Jerusalem with an army behind him, and he stands at the gate, and he screams out in Hebrew, you are doomed. I'm going to make you a deal, and you better take it, or there won't be anything left to take. You've seen what we've done. You've seen that nobody has stopped us. We've taken your fortified cities. What do you have left but the offer that I'm making? Wow. He's such a good bad guy. Have the gods of any nation protected them 
from the king of Assyria? No. Have the gods of the northern kingdom of Samaria protected them from Assyria? No. Since none of them have been successful, how can Yahweh succeed? Now, if there was a mistake, that would be the one. If there's something wrong in what he said, that would be the thing. The arrogance of the Assyrian is so great that he claims that there is no God that can defeat this man. And that is going to be the challenge. Isaiah 36, verse 21. But they kept silent, and they didn't say anything. This is the people. Because the king's command was, don't answer him. So then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him the words, of the royal spokesman. They leave the road. They've just been humiliated. They've been threatened. They've stood before one of the most powerful people in the known world of their day, these three guys, listening to his threats and his bargain. Because this is a, this is a bargaining meeting. This was not to go in and attack yet. This was giving them a chance to surrender. And these three guys get done listening and they say nothing. And they turn around. They walk back into the city. And they go find Hezekiah and tell him what this guy had said. And they tore their clothes. That's kind of a weird thing. They tore their clothes. That sounds weird to you and me. We just don't walk around tearing our clothes. Do you tear your clothes? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, so tearing your clothes would be like, Anguish. You get bad news, really bad news, and you're like, ah, and you tear your clothes. It's almost like an incredible Hulk moment. But it's more along the lines of remorse and regret. It's, it's like mourning. It's being so grieved that you need to physically somehow express the tearing that's going on in your heart by tearing the garments you have outside of you. And they're so grieved and overrun by this that they tear their clothes, and they go into Hezekiah and report to him what this person has said. And the chapter ends this way. You leave the story with doom and gloom and a heavy heart. You leave the story at this point with your insides ripped open, feeling vulnerable and unable to do anything about your circumstance. Here's a good king doing good things for God that now has the enemy standing at his door making threats to come take him out. This is a tough spot. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Have you ever felt like God has given you something you don't deserve? You ever felt like God has dished up something that you just didn't deserve at all? I'm sure Hezekiah might have felt that way a little bit. He's the first king to totally wipe out idolatry in Israel, probably since they left the promised land, since they left uh, the wilderness. And now this is happening? Have you ever been discouraged by the circumstances around you? Have you ever looked around you and saw only dismay and discouragement because this physical problem won't go away or this family situation will never end or this whatever the circumstances at work 
that he just keeps looking like I'm up against the wall and the enemy keeps coming and there's nothing I can do and I'm helpless because of my circumstance. You ever felt like that? You ever face a challenge that seems totally insurmountable from your human perspective? First, let me say this. Those feelings are not sin. (laughs) Wrong actions based on those feelings would be sin. But having those feelings, that's part of being human. The question is, what do you do during times like these? Where do you turn for guidance and advice? Who do you rely on? I think often when I feel this way, I feel like God is out to get me. And I've started to, and I start to believe wrong things about God. I start to believe lies about God. This message is for me, probably more than most of you. I prayed that God would just allow it to connect with you as well. Because it's easy for me to see the circumstances that we face as a church. It's easy for me to see the circumstances that people in our church family are facing. It's easy for me to look at the circumstances at work and how the pandemic has has done its number on all the stuff that's going on around us and the businesses around us. And it's easy for me to feel like the people on the wall and to think, yep, it's a bad report. Yeah, it's not good. But I want to ask you some more questions. Is it possible that the situation God allows us to be in are meant to be more than just a discouragement. That they're meant to be more than just a punishment if we deserve that punishment. Is it any coincidence that some of the greatest people of faith in the Bible face some of the greatest oppositions, challenges, depression, and even anguish? Can you think of some of the great people of the Bible that went through challenging times like this? Give me some names. Job, you have to go to the book of Job. Yep, read it when you're happy, and the sun is out. But read the book of Job. Um, Yeah. Anybody else? Elijah, Joshua, Joseph. (laughs) Joseph, yeah. Who's that? Yeah. Abraham. Moses. Elijah. Somebody said Elijah. The Apostle Paul. What about Jesus? Right? I was waiting for it. Like, what about Jesus in the garden, right? Wow. Yeah. Last week, we looked at the heart of the king and how he started his reign by honoring God. And now, 14 years into it, the king is facing a precipice of decision that will test the faith that motivated his actions in the first year of his reign. Fourteen years after he stood strong and changed the entire nation and brought them to God, he's facing a situation that will test the faith that he has in Yahweh God. This is one of the great themes of the Bible. This is one of the great themes of the Christian life. This is not just the story of Hezekiah. This is the story of every God follower. 
This is Eve and the serpent moment. This is the Cain and Abel moment. This is the Abraham and Isaac moment. This is the Peter on the night in which Jesus was betrayed moment. This is the moment in which what you know about God and what you believe about God is put to the test where you have no choice but to either act in faith upon it or ignore it and do what you think is best. That's what Ahaz did. But I believe there's a reason Hezekiah is here. There's always a reason for what happens. And this idea of it isn't faith until it's tested is a major theme of the Bible. And it's brought out over and over again. Read Deuteronomy chapter, chapters 8 through 11, and you'll see this message over and over and over again. You'll find out why God put them through the wilderness, the Jews through the wilderness, and what the end result was supposed to be. The purpose is to test our faith in God. See, it's easy to follow God when things are good, isn't it? Isn't it really easy to follow God when things are good? It's easy to follow God when you're receiving his blessings. This is Hezekiah's first 13 years. It's not always easy to follow God when circumstances seem stacked against you and what seems to be the removal of his blessing and his protection. But let me ask you, have you read the Psalms? <laughs> Here's a guy who felt like he was in trouble all the time. David. Not this David. Bible David. And he cried out over and over and over again. This story, the story of Hezekiah, is your story and my story. And Isaiah, I believe, is sharing this story because it's the story of the nation Israel. It's the story of what the nation has to do and has failed to do. It's the story of, will you trust the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength? Not just love him, but will you trust him with all of your heart, soul, and strength? And he's sharing this with the nation Israel because that's what they need to be doing. And Hezekiah is at the situation where he now has to choose. Ahaz failed. Will Hezekiah fail? Will he pass? But it's also significant in that this is the same story for every one of us. We will face these precipices of decision where we have to choose. Am I going to follow God or am I going to look at my circumstances? Am I going to make decisions that I want or am I going to trust what God says? Am I going to lean on my allies and my worldly wisdom, my worldly friends, or am I going to lean on God? Even if I seem to be crying out over and over again and it doesn't seem to be answered yet. Even if it seems like the odds are stacked against me and there's no way I can win. Even if the enemy keeps whispering in my ear or shouting in my face, your God can't help you. Your God can't save you. You have no hope. So the question is, what do you do when you face these situations. The other question is, what does Hezekiah do when he faces the situation? You're going to have to tune in next week to find out. Because <laughs> I can't cover it this week. It will be here until like 6 o'clock tonight. And there's a game that David's got to get to, so I can't do that. 
So what about you? Are you struggling? Are you tired? Are you weary? Do you feel defeated, discouraged? How are you handling it? What do you turn to? If you're feeling this way, um, my word of encouragement for this morning, read chapter 40. After the life of Hezekiah, the book changes. Chapter 40 starts out with comfort, comfort, my friends. And chapter 40 is a great chapter of encouragement. Read chapter 40 this week. But let me leave you with a little bit of encouragement from that chapter. It's a passage that we quote all the time. Chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. And he never becomes faint or weary. And there's no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint. And he strengthens the powerless. And youths may become faint and weary, and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not become weary, and they will walk and not faint. Let's pray. God, we do love you. And sometimes, Father, we struggle trusting you. I have a feeling, Father, that I'm not the only one that's been facing the wall of discouragement and frustration or testing, feeling weak and overpowered. But I pray that today you would give strength to those that are weary, that you would give hope to those that are discouraged, that you would remind us that you are the God who sustains everything. Our very lives, our work, our health, our situations, the pandemic, you are the God who is in control. And we can trust you. So teach us, Father, to trust you. And as we face these challenges, as we face these testings of our faith, Father, help us to lean on you. And not on our own understanding. Help us in all of our ways to acknowledge you and to trust you to guide us, we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for uh, sticking it out through the whole story of chapter 36. Um, I was supposed to be done with Hezekiah last week. I think we'll be done with Hezekiah in January, and if not, that's okay. But I want you to read uh, through the chapter 40. You're welcome to read through chapters 37 and 38 if you want to get a, a glimpse of what's ahead. We're going to pick up with the rest of the story of what happens with this wall encounter with Hezekiah Lord willing next week. Um, so I don't think we have anything else, do we? I think we're going to actually, uh, we're going to stop the live stream in a minute. We are going to close in a song because some of, if, if you're comfortable singing, you can stay and sing. We have a lot of people here, so you could put your masks on probably for singing because we have so many people here. And we're just going to close in the song together. Um, and I want to, hopefully everybody that was online was able to hear. Apparently there was some issue in the beginning. There's an echo again. Okay. So I'm sorry. I am just too loud.